Welcome to the Preacher's Podcast. We are starting a new series today called Define Christian. Uh, If you ask people in your community around the world what a Christian is, you will get wildly different answers depending on whom you ask. And even among Christians themselves, you'll probably get different definitions of what it means to be a Christian, someone who belongs to Christ or who follows Christ or believes in Christ. Well, what we want to do in this series is let Jesus himself define what a Christian is. Each week in this series, we'll be looking at a portion of scripture and from that, drawing out uh, some of what it means to be a Christian. So today we're getting started with our series with the Christian loves God above all. Before we go any farther, just let me introduce everybody on today's recording. Uh, I'm John Mitchell from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, and let me introduce you to our two preachers for this series, Pastor Andrew Miller from Beautiful Savior Lutheran Church in Las Vegas, Nevada, and Pastor Tom Unke from Shepherd of the Hills Lutheran Church in Las Vegas. Also with us today is Professor Alan Sorum from the seminary. So thanks to all of you for serving today, and Andy and Tom for serving throughout this series. Uh, Andy Miller, let's start with you. Proper 8 in year A is the proper that covers this Sunday on the calendar. Um, And as I mentioned, we're also starting a new series, Define Christian. Could you get us started by saying a few words about the theme for this particular week in the series? Sure. Thank you, and good to be with you, brothers. We live in a world full of words, and the world as we know it is constantly defining and redefining terms and characteristics and people too. So if Christians want to lead a lost and very, very confused world to Jesus, first we're going to need to know who we are, and then we're going to want to show who we are. How can we know who we are? Well, the Bible, of course, makes that crystal clear. We are little Christs. We were resurrected in baptism. We were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of God. But now how do we show who we are? Well, God, the Holy Spirit, empowers empowers us to do that too. The gospel today provides the catalyst for us to fear, love, and trust in God above everything. Everything. That includes some pretty big league blessings like family, kids, our snug little creature comforts, and even our own lives, too. The Spirit fires us up to take our crosses up in the name of Jesus. Great. Thanks for that summary, getting us oriented toward uh, the theme for this week. Uh, Tom Unke, let's go to you next. Um, Today, we'll focus on the gospel of the day as our sermon text. But before we get into that, Could you give us a short summary of the first reading and the second reading, and maybe point out um, some connection points between the readings for the day? Yeah, welcome. I'm glad to be able to be with you today. Um, First of all, when I go come to the theme of what is said in the gospel that we're going to be talking about, we hear Jesus talking about a complete commitment. We're his messengers. We carry his message. And so we have in the first two readings kind of a comparison, at least in my mind, of 
two messengers, one doing it poorly and one being encouraged to do it properly. Um, Exodus 32, 15 to 29, that's the aftermath of the um, golden calf. And Aaron's trying to describe what happened because Moses is looking for an explanation. And Aaron clearly shows himself to be a compromiser and a people pleaser, says some odd things that don't really necessarily make sense, except if you're trying to cover for yourself. The, the people came and said, make us gods. And, and, um, and then when he melted down and the gold that they brought to him and made that calf that, you know, mysteriously came out of the fire, then uh, they said, these are the gods that brought us up out of Egypt. And somehow Aaron declared that, okay, well, tomorrow's going to be a feast to the Lord, which is kind of random, but he seems to me like he's trying to bring what they were doing in back in the context of the true God. And so the whole thing is just kind of muddled and Aaron proves himself to be someone who made a crazy compromise that turned the entire people to a false God. So um, that fits in with Jesus talking about no compromise, just share my truth. And then when you go to Paul's statement to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, starting with verse 11, he had been talking in the first part of 1 Timothy 6 about how there would be people, preachers, who would um, sacrifice the teachings of Christ for the sake of compromise, and then they would pursue money and at the sake of godliness. And uh, then the text itself comes and says, but you, man of God, flee all that stuff, fight the good fight, take hold of eternal life, keep the command until Jesus comes. And so he was basically saying, you are God's messenger, you have God's message, share just exactly that and, and live it too, which is what comes in more in Matthew 10, the gospel lesson. So that's the way I see the readings fitting together is uh, Christianity without compromise. Yeah, thank you. That's a good summary. Um... Christianity without compromise, and that perfect segue right into the the gospel for the day. So, uh, Alan Sorum, let's go to you to get us thinking about Matthew ten thirty four to forty two, the appointed gospel for this Sunday. Uh, what are some points that stand out to you in this text? Good, good day, brothers. Uh, good to be with you. Good to be talking about this really wonderful portion of scripture. The first thing I'd like to do is establish this text in the flow of Matthew's gospel. <clears throat> Matthew begins by just connecting Jesus to all of the Old Testament prophecies that promise him. Maybe when we were younger, we heard uh, people say, maybe we said ourselves that, that Matthew kind of seems to be a, a gospel for the Jews, when in fact, He's really portraying who a true Jew is, or in line with the theme for today, uh, who a true Christian is, or perhaps more in line of Matthew's language, who is a true disciple. So in part, the first few chapters, Matthew is showing Jesus to be this fulfillment of the, all the promises throughout the Old Testament, that here, here's the Messiah that brings the kingdom of God. In chapters four to seven, we have Jesus traveling all over, announcing that kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven and, and sharing the rescue plan that King Jesus is now announcing to, to the world. And then in chapters 8 to 10, in our section, 
Um, we have the Jesus bringing this great uh, kingdom into reality by bringing people to faith in him. And he's, he's uh, letting people know some of the consequences of this kingdom. To, to really know what it is to be a, a disciple of Jesus, to, to really know what it is to take up your cross as a disciple of Jesus, all you got to do is, is look at Jesus himself and understand what he's done and what he's calling us to. And, and it, these are strange words. If you're advocating a new religion, if you're announcing a new movement on earth, these, it's very strange to hear Jesus say these things the way he does. He says, don't think for a minute I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring division. And he uses a, a word there that makes that division into two very, very clear. You have the, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. And the this warfare, this battle, this sword that Jesus brings is intense and and goes deeper than the the family that Andy had talked about. Uh, it it compromises genetic families because the real loyalties that we the strongest loyalties we have are seated deeply into our spiritual beings. And so this sword sets a man against his father and the daughter against his mother, her mother, excuse me. Uh, a, a man's enemies will be the members of their own household. And now comes that commitment um, part that Tom was talking about, that the, the ultimate commitment belongs to Jesus even more so than the precious commitments of, of blood, of family. And so Jesus says in verse 40, he says, anyone who welcomes you, welcomes me, anyone who welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. It's really an interesting package deal that that Jesus it, it has been sent into this world to call people into his kingdom, which is also the kingdom of the Father. You can't separate Jesus and his Father and the Spirit that empowers his proclamation. And then comes what I think is just a really wonderful treat in the Greek. Um, this kind of surprised me. I, I shouldn't admit that I'm surprised, but Jesus is so artistic when he talks about the one who receives, uh, whoever receives you receives me. The one who receives me receives the Father. If you look at the Greek in that, it's, it's a beautiful chiasm. Uh, to, to be just real clunky, the chiasm, the ABBA goes like this, receive you, me, receive. And then Jesus turns the chiasm inside out, uh, me, receives, receives the one who sent me. And when, when I bump into artistic features like this, I like to, to make them stand out. I like to color code them. So I have decominus and Decatai in red, and Himas and, and me in yellow. And then the second chiasm, I have the Eme and the Tan Apostolanta Me in yellow, and I have the Decama, Deca, Decaminus Decatai in red. Just to, I, when Jesus gets, when any author gets artistic like that, he really wants to emphasize the significance. And, and I think for that reason, uh, it's an important feature of our text studies 
if whoever receives you receives me, the one who receives me receives the one who sent me. And in that paragraph, you have more art. <clears throat> Jesus repeats, Miss Thun, Miss Thun, Miss Thun. He talks about uh, whoever receives the prophet uh, in my name receives the prophet's reward. Whoever receives the righteous person receives the righteous, the reward of the righteous. And whoever receives one of the least of these, uh, whoever gives drink to one of the least of these, <clears throat> um, verily I say to you, will surely not lose his reward. Again, just there's a, really a bunch of really interesting, important things in here that giving giving cold water to one of Jesus' least, that doesn't sound significant, unless you're that little one that really needs a drink of water, then it's very significant. But the, the mass or the grandeur of what we're doing here isn't the point. It's why we're doing it. It's for whom we're doing it. It's it's our expression of our, by the power of the Spirit, embracing the kingdom of God. We're walking in the light. We are a disciple. We are a Christian. And really the call of Matthew is in general to call the people on the earth to become Christ followers. And, and it's all about that motive that's so very important. And then just one last really interesting thing in verse 42, Jesus says, He uses the, the strongest negative, the ume with the heiress there. And then he adds on top of that, that authoritative, lovely phrase that we get so many times in the Gospels. He says, Amen, Lego Himen. Truly, I say to you, you will surely not lose your uh, reward. What, what a marker for the gospel right there, right? That what makes the Christian religion, that what makes being a disciple, uh, what makes the call to Jesus so wonderfully refreshing is this absolutely authoritative gospel promise. Trust in me, walk with me, take up your cross, deny yourself, you will uh, love me above everything, commit to me beyond anything. You will uh, surely not, I swear to you, Jesus says, lose your reward. Great. Yeah. Thanks for pointing out those things in the Greek, Alan. And um, yeah, our, our format here is we're assuming guys have done their text study, but I notice sometimes that when I do a text study, um, some things I catch, some things I don't quite catch. So uh, appreciate your pointing out those artistic ways Jesus has of speaking, the chiasms that are there. Um, let me just open it up to Tom and Andy, too, to reiterate anything Alan said or piggyback on it or new direction. Tom, first. I like that Professor Sorum put the uh, context there and just the immediate context of chapter 10. I just see the disciples as they're being sent out and giving, receiving instructions from Jesus, their eyes getting wider and wider because he talks about, you know, the violent opposition they're going to be facing and uh, that they don't have to be afraid of them, even though they can hurt the body. But, you know, God's the only one to fear, but he's on their side. He loves them intimately. And uh, it probably was exactly opposite of what they thought was going to happen. You know, they're they're going to their fellow Jews. They're pointing them to the Messiah. They probably thought there was, you know, going to be great excitement about it. 
And Jesus has given them the cold, hard reality that it's not, that's not what's going to happen. And you can almost see them just kind of rubbing their chins going, what? And then Jesus sort of takes another run at it. And that's where I feel like verse 34 comes in our text when he says, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth, which that's probably exactly what they were doing, thinking that this was going to be a message that would bring everybody together, but instead it's going to be the opposite. And this was something they needed to hear. And that mindset is still alive today, even outside of Judaism and Christianity, just it's supposed to bring us together around the message of love. And uh, it's not exactly that when Christ's word with that powerful sword comes. Great. Any further thoughts on, on uh, that point that Tom just made? Andy? Yeah, just keying off of that a little bit, too. That word for sword is interesting because there's a, a few different words for sword. The dagger, you know, you've got these sort of havesy swords, but the sword Jesus is talking about is likely something much more pronounced, something much, much more substantial, the kind of sword that you would take into war. And whereas Jesus is prepping his, his students, essentially, his disciples, for what they can absolutely expect when they carry out the gospel ministry, he says, don't worry, in a sense, I'm going to bring a sword of my own. I'm going to bring almost like an overtone of not just division, but, you know, a fighting back, a revolt, a rebellion with the, the cause of the cross and of the gospel. And yes, it will create conflicts of interest, but you can't help but think of the sword that Jesus brings also in terms of, say, the sword of the spirit and the sword that divides body and soul, joint and marrow. Great. Yeah, that, that maybe is a suggestion for preachers to think about uh, keying off of that, that central image of the sword um, that Jesus brings up in the first verse of the text there, too. The, the division that... Um, it's yeah, it's just so counterintuitive, isn't it? As Tom mentioned, disciples following Jesus, they're enthused, they're excited, they know they're on the right track, um, and then Jesus says something like this: um, "Here's what you can expect now, um, and here's what it means to be uh, someone who follows me and who is loyal to me." Um, but yeah, Andy, I like your suggestion too. Maybe. Uh, as you get to the gospel in the sermon, <clears throat> keying off of other mentions of the sword in scripture uh, that, that Jesus brings, the sword of the spirit, uh, right? The Hebrews 10, uh, or Hebrews 4, I'm sorry, Hebrews 4 sword, right? That divides joints and marrow, um, the living and active word. Um, let's talk about that in, in that terms a little bit uh, as we think about the the dialogue between law and gospel here in the text, or as preachers are wrestling with that, um, what would you look to? And I think we've hinted at it already in different ways. What would you look to as kind of the malady of this text, or what are you helping listeners uh, wrestle with in terms of uh, the law in this text? How would you summarize that? Uh, Andy? One way that I think about it, which can be very personal too, because we get worn out and sort of burned out a little bit, but when am I going to give up my dreamy misconception about life in Christ? That I'm going to, I'm going to get the rainbows and butterflies, and if I just do it right, everything will be harmonious and comfortable I suppose if I was thinking about it in terms of my people and catechumens, I might say, 
<laughs> something like beware of the attitude that slips into the, uh, you know, what's the bare minimum I have to put into this Christianity thing? You know, like an, ah, that's good enough Christianity or the Christian attitude that sort of mirrors uh, the old meatloaf lyric. I will do anything for Christ, but I won't do that. You know, I'm a Christian, you bet, but no, don't ask me to be uncomfortable. Don't ask me to, uh, to uh, get overly committed. Don't ask me to take up a cross of all things. It's just, uh, it's really a challenge. It's a clarion call deep to the heart. Great thoughts, Tom. Um, so when I think about maladies, I I'm try to sort of a simple mind. I try to look at which commandments come into play. Mm -hmm. And I, first of all, look at the second commandment and kind of point the finger at preachers and think of it for myself too. the throughout the course of history, Satan has been trying to work the ecumenical thing, which basically is compromise away from the truth and, and do it for the sake of peace or harmony among Christian people. So you go back to, I don't know, like Marburg Colloquy, Philip of Hesse wanted it to be a um, compromise type thing or the Prussian Union or I even think, you know, after 9-11, there was this push to say, let's, we're in crisis. We need to set aside the differences. And there sure is a temptation to do that always. Um, I recently traveled to Germany and I realized that things in Germany are changing dramatically and they don't like to talk about uh, denominations that much. Our, our guide was said he was a Lutheran, but uh, all he talked about was Protestants and how Protestants are coming together. And he even said that's what Luther's whole goal was to bring Protestants together. And the Augsburg Confession was all about uh, just getting people to be on the same page and set aside their cultural and opinion-based differences. And I said, I don't, that's not the Luther I know, but so the whole concept of compromising for the sake of getting along, and that's opposite of what Jesus would tell us as pastors. Now, granted, we're not, we're not uh, preaching the pastors necessarily, but you sure have to take that to heart and then share it with the people too, because he says it personally, we don't want to make compromising, you know, who, who saves his life will lose it um, for the sake of convenience, like Andy talked about, the, what's the bare minimum I can do. And then the second thing, first commandment stuff, uh, probably more prominent in here, and that's uh, let nothing or no one become more important than God himself. And uh, there's so many applications for that. I think a preacher drools over this text because of the way that uh, the way that modern Christian Americans are today, just bare minimum, casual approach, do what I can, what I can, when I can. So uh, there's a lot of, a lot of law, a lot of malady. It's going to be a long sermon. Uh, Alan, do that. Yeah, I think the, the phrase Tom just used, of, I, I'm, I'm drooling over this text too, because I think it really sets us up as spiritual leaders of congregations to begin to pair, prepare our people for the, the flow of the world against us now is with a whole uh, gender identification. And there are, there are, there's a possibility where our preaching of the word of God, especially regarding sex, could 
make us guilty of hate crimes. Uh, that there, there are things going on in our government, that, not by even elected officials, but but by uh, executive signatures that put in place a real attack on basic Christian morals, and that that make Christian morals not just like we're, we're no longer just like backward. We're the enemy. We're we're the bad guys. So now we have an opportunity to really, I think, especially our young people, a theory I have, I can't prove it and go ahead and say I'm all wet. But I think one reason Christianity in general and loses young people is we don't challenge them. This text says to young people, says to Christians, you're the kingdom's spear point. And to think in terms of that, that just by living your life and preaching sharing your faith you are identifying yourself as the enemy of the of satan who's in charge of the world who who's sown the weeds into the kingdom and it's going to be a battle i think this text gives us a great opportunity to prepare our people for for what that means and that means um to to not be afraid to to in terms of preaching the law we don't sign up for Christianity because we get a nice hot long bath in the name of Jesus. Quite the opposite. We, we, we get to participate in swinging that sword that Andy was talking about. So there is a place for, for uh, love and peace and unity, right? Uh, Jesus himself speaks about all those things, but not at the expense of truth, not at the expense of loyalty to God, putting him first, right? So, um, yeah, and th this is that text that highlights that, uh, or one of them, we could point to other words of the Savior, too, that say there, there can be no compromises. So, um, yes, there is a time for peace and unity and love and uh, consideration, but not at the expense of uh, loyalty to God above all. Uh, Tom? I haven't really developed this much, but I, I mean, maybe you could do something with uh, Jesus doesn't bring a negotiated peace with a sinful world. He conquers and then declares the terms of the peace. And we love that. So I don't know. I, like I said, you have, I haven't developed it, but it's a thought. Right, right. That could, that could be a good suggestion. Uh, yeah, peace. If what you're thinking of is peace is I give a little bit, you give a little bit, we all give a little and, and sort of meet in the middle. Yeah, that's that's not what Jesus is expressing here, is it? It's um, it's uh, yeah, like as you said, an unnegotiated, unnegotiated peace. Um, well, turning to some of the gospel thoughts in this text, um, or let me just ask, how would you bring out preaching on this text, uh, gospel here when there are so many words of warning, uh, Andy? It's, there's an indelible connection between our commitment and the cross. And it's not just the crosses we carry up. It's even more so the cross of Christ. Jesus, for example, owned all the comforts. He owned the crown before he ever decided, because he loved us, to come take up the cross. And how, I mean, I just kind of imagine... If, if things were different, how could our how could hearts have been changed if Jesus was just a really compelling 
and successful politician. Because to a degree, sometimes that's what his disciples were hoping for, someone who would restore the comfortable order. How could righteousness exist within me unless Jesus first lived with it perfectly and then suffered at the hands of the unrighteous? And, And I'm saying that in connection to the commitment, because the more Christians delve into this very challenging call to be committed and uncompromising, the heavier the cross will be before the crown. But they need to know that the righteousness is already their reward, their misfun. And um, and then again, same thing, like how could the serpent's head have been crushed without Jesus enduring at the hands of wicked, wicked, idolatrous, first commandment thrashing people? Um, the cross just, or the crown just doesn't come without the cross. And that is the absolutely, I think, indelible connection between this and the the call of Christ for us to take up our crosses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The utter commitment that he showed for our sakes. Uh, Tom? Yeah, I like what Andy said, and, you know, that takes us to Philippians 2, you know, equality with God is, wasn't something in his mind to be grasped, but he lowered himself all the way to the cross. And there's specific gospel there by the ton. I also thought of more of a general gospel that not necessarily to the cross, but we should just absolutely marvel that God, you know, Christ Jesus wants to be first in our heart. He could discard us because of our sin, but instead he wants to be the first thing in our heart. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, dumb illustration maybe, but you think of yourself as a high school boy and a girl comes and she says she wants to be your one and only you're flying high, you know, and, and this is what this is what God's desire is. He, we can't explain it, but He wants to be not just first commandment, but also grace. You know, the gift, and He wants us to have that treasure. So He's warning us not because He's angry with us. He's warning us because He doesn't want anything to threaten that relationship. And that general gospel is uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Wants us to know his love, and uh, he knows that nothing else can compare to that, right? And so wants us uh, to experience that and have that. Uh, Andy, another thought? Well, yeah, just keying off what Tom said there, too. Sometimes it's not, it's not that we love our family too much. I don't know that we could ever do that necessarily. It's that we just, in relation to them, love God too little. And so maybe an easy transition point to make or some, some kind of incorporated point here would be when you reflect upon, you know, the sacrifices that family members have made for you, your love for them grows. Well, how will your commitment for Christ and be enhanced and intensify and grow? Well, it's reflecting upon the sacrifice and the commitment of Christ. Yeah, you mentioned um, love for family, and, and that's one of the, the key sections here in the text that, that preachers will probably be um, wrestling with and, and how, to, how to present. Yeah, sometimes the way I've said it is that, uh, you know, Jesus seems to, at first glance, you know, be thinking of this as a zero-sum thing, as if, um, you know, we, we love him more, that must mean loving our family less, but uh, I don't think that's what he's saying. And, and in fact, as Andy, you kind of um, were alluding to this, as our love for Christ increases based on his love for us, 
Um, isn't that a great power source for actually increasing our love for family? I mean, if we love Christ more, won't we find ourselves loving our family even more um, and wanting what is good for them uh, spiritually and eternally? Um, I think so. So yeah, maybe, maybe an additional thought I, I wanted to throw out there if preachers are wrestling with how to present that angle of the text. Um, how about... Um, illustrations, applications that come to mind as you think of this text? Um, any ideas or suggestions that uh, come to mind? And we've mentioned a couple already. Um, additional ones that might be helpful for preachers. Alan? I want to pick up on something Tom said. Uh, in a human relationship, it's fair to require absolute loyalty, but what are the chances, right? Um, they're, they're not good. I, I think what makes this text really unique is the unconditional promise at the very, very end that you, you who are faithful to me, you will surely not lose your reward. That, that makes Christianity such a unique religion. Uh, I was listening recently to a podcast of a Muslim scholar talking about what happens to a Muslim when they die. And it was, it was very interesting. And, and, you know, the, the angels come and visit the tomb, the, the casket. And if, if you're lucky, that casket might get opened up, et cetera, et cetera. But here, after this podcast, the Muslim scholar said, if I should be so fortunate to be accepted by Allah, I'll enjoy blessings beyond imagination. I'm thinking to myself, holy holy mackerel, this religious expert advocating his religion isn't sure what's going to happen to him when he dies. Mm -hmm. He's not sure how he's going to be received by Allah. And how does that make you live your life? How does that help you face your death? How does that help you manage the, the, the hard things of, of not only being in this hard fight against Satan's um, seeds, but when we get wounded, uh, and I and I I want to preach a sermon not just to Muslims who don't know their destiny, but to the Lutherans that are sitting out there for whatever reason, not absolutely sure, absolutely sure that they're going to be received by a tender-hearted God when when they die. Right, right, yeah. The heart of love uh, in Jesus, we see it here expressed in kind of a way we don't expect it. This call for radical commitment, but. Yeah, again, he wants us to know love, peace, assurance, have no doubts about how we stand with him now and forever. Tom? Um, going back to how Jesus discusses the relationship with you know family and wife and that sort of thing, um, the brothers who are preparing to preach this sermon might want to take a look at Moses in Deuteronomy 33 where he is blessing the tribes, but then he speaks to Levi in verse eight and commends him for setting aside his relationship with his family for the sake of protecting and preparing the word. And I, I didn't do a lot in there, but I think there might be something in there to dig up. So just a suggestion. I didn't find that myself. I saw that I believe in uh, Wenzel's commentary. Okay. Good suggestion. Deuteronomy 33, eight. Okay. Uh, Andy, another thought? Just as a potential application, we've been so conditioned culturally and frankly, spiritually too, 
to consider disagreement and discrimination and divorce, anything that has to do with division as being a dirty word, horrible. And frankly, a lot of those things are or can be. But there is actually a division that Jesus brings that is healthy and constructive for our spiritual lives and for our lives under the cross. And that's really a lot of what he brings out in this, this whole context having hard, hard conversations with those near and dear to us, including in those middle verses, verses 38 and 39, with ourselves. Have we been trying to find our lives and in the process unwittingly almost losing it? Well, so anyway, just the, the idea of division as being not necessarily always unhealthy, but under Christ and his cross, constructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, paradoxical thing, division that is actually healthy uh, and good. Tom? And I think just following up on that, this gives us an opportunity to really push back against what a lot of people out there in American Christianity are facing. Um, We have a preschool here where almost all of the parents are not members of our church, so they're you know, dabbling in Christianity of all different kinds and consider themselves to be Christians. But um, it's such a different flavor than what Jesus is teaching here that it's a good opportunity for us to really clarify, you know, defining Christian is the theme. So because I guess there are three things that I see, especially young Christians or people who call themselves Christians wrestling with their they're willing to and encouraged to compromise on truth. You know, this whole, it's not that big a deal. Those are pastors debates and they're falling into a mindset of consumer worship. You know, the, we like the pastor who's very charismatic and wears the skinny jeans and untucked shirt and the great entertainment there. So they feel like they're consumers of worship and they evaluate stuff. And then the third thing that is so common is just this, what Andy talked about before, I call it convenient faith. When I get to it, um, bare minimum kind of stuff. And those are all things that are so commonly in the way of thinking that people think they're Christians, but uh, that's not at all what I hear Jesus talking about here with a full 100% commitment. So it gives us a chance to define specifically who a Christian is by God's terms, not human. Right, right. As Ellen mentioned, um, it's it's an opportunity to challenge uh, listeners um, wherever they're they're at in their Christian faith um, with this uh, startling proclamation of Jesus about um, here's what it means to follow me. But this is a good a good thing uh, in ways you can't imagine. Andy, one last application, perhaps briefly, and keying on the reward emphasis that Professor Soren brought up. This might be a great place in our worship to comfort some of our families. I, I know Tom probably has this too, but out here in these outlying districts, um, when it's not unique, I suppose, but you get a lot of families who they raise their kids in a church, in our church, and then the kids grow up, they go off to a college, they go off to find their significant other, and eventually they either fall away from the faith or they just they kind of water it down and go some different direction to based on who they meet and who they're hanging out with. And parents are distraught and sometimes heartbroken by all these labors that were seemingly in vain. And they just are not. 
it's the crosses that we bear under Christ are just absolutely positively always worth it in the end, even in spite of the fallout. Yeah. Yeah. This is one text I think that will hit home in a very personal ways with a lot of people um, who have experienced this very uh, division within their families um, um, who, who live with that. You know, it's, it's not a theoretical thing for them, but a very, uh, a very practical thing um, and something very close to their heart. Uh, well, let me just close by asking um, any uh, theme ideas or uh, even in rough form that you're working with, anything to suggest um, preachers to uh, grease the gears a little bit as they're thinking of uh, how to kind of encapsulate, summarize the, the main thrust of this text? Any suggestions? Tom? Um, yeah, I'm just kind of starting to turn this around a little bit, but I had one that has the uh, alliteration, which I don't always go for, but it works here. I think Christ calls for complete commitment. Mm -hmm. It's not a call to action, but it's a summary of the text. And then I have one that's got a little bit more of a Las Vegas flair to it, and that is uh, Jesus tells us to go all in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's right very good very good yeah i'm good With no good. chance of going broke <laughs> right right uh yeah andy i'll key on the las vegas thing from a little bit different angle but uh one way you could address the text there really is a a math element here so you could maybe make a little pun and say something like the math of god where in verses 34 to 37 you have the division element in verses 38 and 39, you have addition by subtraction. Whoever loses his life for my sake will essentially mm -hmm. find it. And then, of course, at the end with the reward, the misthun, you've got in verses 40 through 42, I would call it multiplication, where the things that we do under the cross for the sake of Christ and his servants, even unwittingly, will culminate in an awesome, immeasurable reward. Excellent. Yeah. Good idea. Uh, Alan? Just to nuance Tom's proposal a little bit, um, th this is a little complicated. I don't have it finished either, but though salvation is free, discipleship will cost you everything, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, bringing out the, the commitment aspect. Right. Andy? Yeah, and just one final simple one might be something like uh, keying off again that idea of Jesus uncompromising commitment. If you wanted to take a text that was perhaps heavy law and make it more gospel intoned, mm -hmm. Jesus committed himself to you. He brought the sword, he carried the cross, he gives the reward. Oh, great. So focus on that gospel aspect of Jesus commitment that inspires our commitment. All right. Well, let's uh, stop for today. Thank you for the excellent contributions, preachers and uh, Professor Sorum. Um, we uh, pray that that'll give lots of great ideas um, as preachers are looking at this text and thinking about how to present it to their hearers in the coming week. So God bless you, preachers, as you proclaim this word of uh, the uncompromising Savior who calls for commitment as we follow him.